it hit me, mm-hmm. it, right? And it hit me hard because I'm good at this, but I just didn't study. Mm-hmm. You look at your friends who still have the good grades, right? And and you realize, shit, I, I could not achieve what I've worked for. And then I was questioning a lot of things. And luckily at that time, I found a video and it's called Fear Setting. What does that mean, setting your fears? Your fears, when you set goals, are super emotional. Your brain is there to make you survive. What Fear Setting does is that it, it gives you tools to manage your fears. Mm-hmm. Should I tell you the basics of it? Hello everyone and welcome back to the First Strong Podcast. Today it's going to be a slightly different show as I'm interviewing the founder and co-CEO from the startup that I'm currently interning with. It's called Charles and I'm super excited to share the story of Artyom Weisbeck with you. How are you doing Artyom? Very good, very excited. You're so a different setting than the day-to-day work. <laughs> yes, for sure. Can you quickly tell our audience where we are based right now? We are based in Berlin, actually exactly where the wall was before, because c- the prior wall is running through our kitchen here in the Berlin office. Uh, so there was the wall and now there's Charles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in the east right now, uh, east side of the wall, but you can also um, move across the office and then you're in the west. That's uh, pretty crazy. And yeah, I will just quickly introduce Adi. So Artyom was born in Russia and he scaled his first major company, Captain and Son, straight out of law school to now uh, more than 150 employees and close to 50 million revenue in the last year. And he did so in 2014. And this is a global fashion and lifestyle brand. They started with watches and then also diversifying with backpacks, sunglasses, etc. And after expanding Captain and Son and operations to New York, Adi returns to Europe, remains on the board of Captain, and founds his second venture called Charles, based in Berlin in 2018. And Charles started as Europe's first WhatsApp store, selling premium basics and then pivoting to a software as a service product, pioneering conversational commerce and Axel and HV Capital, so the creme de la creme of European investors, just let their 7 million seed round. And this year they will be going crazy. And yeah, Adi, could you quickly tell us about your current venture, Charles? What are you doing at Charles? Of course. So um, behind Charles, there uh, there's a core belief that chat apps or the interface of chat apps, chat apps like WhatsApp, uh, Instagram Direct and others, Uh, will become the third big pillar of commerce next to retail and e-commerce. So explicitly that means that we believe that traffic from browsers and traffic from retail stores, so food traffic, will move into chat apps in in the form of conversations because conversation is the typical medium of interaction between companies and customers in chat. So with that traffic, there's also conversion or transaction. That means that everything that you know from e-commerce or everything that you know from retail will start happening in your chat apps like your WhatsApp. And that is already perfectly normal in Asia and in Latin America. And now it's coming to the West. And we as Charles, we want to empower every brand out there to really service, sell and keep relationships with their customers via conversational commerce and via chat apps. So that needs a technological foundation that needs the railways to do that, similar as retail and e-commerce had their technological railways. And so this is what we are now building. Okay. Yeah, that is also super exciting for me. That's why I'm why I interned here at Charles. And during my time here, 12 weeks, the team size tripled. So I wonder if you hire even more people today. 
Absolutely. So we're actually we're actually hiring up to 20 or 30 people in the next six six months. So there's a lot of things uh, you could do here at Charles. Just so you have an idea of our clients, it's brands, direct-to-consumer brands or bigger enterprises who start selling and servicing their customers in WhatsApp. And you help those clients or you, you help building the product or you start help us finding those clients or you help us making those clients uh, successful in that totally new channel. And so there's always things to do, as Eustos can tell you. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and yeah, that's the status quo. And let's start where it all began. Yes. Yeah, you just told me that you were actually born in Russia. And could you just quickly tell me your journey from Russia to Germany and then also why you decided for law? Absolutely. Yeah, so I was born in Siberia uh, in a city called Tomsk. And I lived there until I was four. Before I moved to Germany, I really didn't decide on that. My parents <laughs> moved me here. And so I grew up in Würzburg, a German town, a German city. Not too big until I started studying law in Heidelberg. And I was really passionate about chemistry. So for a long time, I wanted to become a chemist. Mm -hmm. But once I was in a laboratory for two weeks, I really decided I'd rather wear a suit. And <laughs> it was really not the most educated decision at that time. And um, <laughs> Going with the outfit. <laughs> exactly. And uh, also, especially because today I don't really wear suits. Uh, so I was wrong. No, but there's also many other reasons why I decided for law. And it started in Heidelberg. Uh, and actually, then I moved on to Münster. It's also another city, very traditional university, well known for law studies, very conservative, as many good law universities are. Yeah, very interesting that you said that you now actually don't wear a suit. And I think that's quite a pivot. Can you tell us more about what drew you from this more conventional path of studying law and wearing a suit in the end to something different or the lifestyle of an entrepreneur? What were your first projects in that respect? Yeah, I think that the two things that inspired me most to even consider that before really starting a project was Uh, on the one hand, my father, who was also as an immigrant, not uh, an entrepreneur in the sense that he was building venture capital businesses mm -hmm. in the technology space, but he did his own thing. And I was observing that every day and it was in the construction engineering space. So I saw all the ups and downs and what it takes to kind of get through this and also what it meant for family. And I think that was my first touch point. So the second touch points. I had was really books and YouTube videos. I was a little bit bored by law very early on. I had too much energy and too much creative thirst, which kind of the books of law could not really fulfill. I didn't feel in flow so much studying it, right? I really believe in the concept of flow and today also from a scientific perspective. But at that time, I could already feel that I'm not in flow that much. So I, I, I always looked for a new inspiration and I found it in books. So I read books of all the, you could say, cliche, iconic entrepreneurs of this world from Musk to Jobs to Branson. But then I also moved on to more practical books like How Do You Start, Lean Startup. It, it just really fascinated me. The, the, uh, the idea of a startup really fascinated me because it felt like freedom. Right. You mm -hmm. could really freedom for your mind, freedom for your creativity, freedom for who you choose to work with and freedom to choose what you want to work on. And, and those stories, of course, in those books were extremely inspiring because they don't tell you about the other 99% who fail. right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, same as the YouTube videos. And how that manifested was that I think I was 21 or 22 
Um, when with a few friends who were engineers at university, I realized that a lot of my fellow law students or graduate law graduates are not getting jobs and that uh, maybe there could be a software that helps with that. So okay. together with those friends who are engineers, we and one of them is actually also an engineer today at Charles, we, we build a software that makes it, that helps law students to find jobs. It was called Lawyered. Like you maybe saw How I Met Your Mother, the one guy always said Lawyered. Mm -hmm. That was inspired by that. And it was a very cool because it was next to studies. At that time, I didn't have to study too much. Okay. And it was a cool project to get in touch with all of that. But it never got the scale of a Captain and Son or a Charles. It was also taken over by a competitor later on. And yeah, that's a little bit of the first touch points mm -hmm. with, with, with entrepreneurship. But the, the real, real start was, was Captain and Son, definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, let's talk more about that. It's interesting because it's more like a process. You start with a little entrepreneurial project that even got um, taken over by the competition. So that might or, or already be your first success, but then you didn't just quit your law study, you still degree in law with distinction even. During the study, you found another company, Captain Sun, and this might be the first big entrepreneurial project that you um, did. And I think this is always the most interesting subject to talk about with serial entrepreneurs. The first a big thing where they gain all the trust and uh, the momentum. Because in the beginning you don't even have anything. You don't have the um, momentum and uh, it's the most difficult point to bring the commitment and passion to the table. Uh, which is necessary to start something and turn towards an unconventional path and leave the usual uh, path. So yeah, what, what motivated you to actually execute on that idea? Oh, yeah, it was a lot of things. Again, I think in general, I was still finishing. Uh, so I was right in front of my first degree. So I was mm -hmm. kind of studying for the bar exam. It's really not a good timing to found a company. <clears throat> I think the biggest motivators to the one hand was, again, as I told you, so my father was in construction, always saw the hard work. And as a student, I never really felt comfortable of spending money from my parents on a, yeah, on things we do as students because mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a different lifestyle uh, construction and student life yeah. at least for at least how i did the student life and that was definitely one big motivator so kind of being being able to support yourself mm -hmm. before that i always did it with like jobs on the side but i really liked it more in terms of with your own business uh, again based on the books you know the inspiration but the other thing in that case, particular case was actually that it is not it, it wasn't really planned to start a big business mm -hmm. with captain and son it was more uh, with fabian and johannes two friends i was studying with we needed a new watch all of us and i was very lucky in that sense that fabian he knew about alibaba right where you have access to production plans Mm -hmm. for all kinds of products in China. And we wrote some of them because we found out that we could actually, if we tell them we want to produce mm -hmm. a certain batch size, then you can uh, pay for a prototype and then do that prototype as you want, right? So it was just really cool distraction next to studying for the bar exam mm -hmm. um, that we said we can design our own watch and it will actually cost the same price as if we would buy a similar quality watch on the market. Right, but it's our own mm -hmm. and we, we didn't even intend to produce anything 
so that's that's how it did and we designed it we we really digged into it what what is good about watch we thought about the branding and how it looks it was a really cool really cool watch still today mm-hmm. i can say that and when we got the prototype it was really exciting and we were always wearing it and a lot of friends asked where it's from they were like where did you buy this i want to buy it too mm-hmm. can't buy it doesn't exist on the market did it ourselves so after a lot of friends asking us we said okay maybe let, we should give it a try mm-hmm. so we we contacted the producers again and we said okay guys we know you want a thousand watches from us as a batch we only have enough money for 100 and that was already all of our savings because we paid it for it ourselves um, so it was our personal save- savings I even remember we sold some stuff or rented uh, loaned some money from friends mm-hmm. so because it was around 5,000 euros I think we needed as I don't remember 100% for everything 5 mm-hmm. to 10,000 so um, yeah so we told him let us do 100 and we promise you within the next two months it will be a thousand mm-hmm. so after a long discussion Chinese supplier was like okay you can do it you have two months right <laughs> And uh, we got the 100 watches, and this is also when we started building a website, when we started making photography, and when we, when we thought of, okay, how will we promote this watch? You know, the typical thing you do with reverse, you do a video with your friends, mm. take your best looking friends, and you make a cool video with a friend who can actually make a video. So <laughs> typical yeah. things you could, because you're normally surrounded by a lot of talented people in reverse to have on average more time than when you will be working, right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually a good, good, a good time to do things. Yeah. Let me stop you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what other talent did you need? Because now it seems quite easy. You just wrote someone on Alibaba, and then you kicked off this production. But you also designed the watch. Or uh, what other skills um, did you need? Did you reach out to other people, or could you do it all yourself? Yeah, that's a thing that I learned. So when it comes to most products that we, so direct to consumer products mm-hmm. that we know or that you buy or use on a daily basis at the end of the day they are not so complicated and most brands get them from the same suppliers Mm -hmm. right so if you really dig into any vertical there's very limited verticals who are super complicated Mm -hmm. right and of course every product from Kappenstein is extremely sophisticated in the way it's done it's all designed uniquely every piece of it is unique but at that time in 2014 it was more you could say you would you would choose from the from the basics, right? Mm-hmm. They would have something in shelf and then you can just mix and match basically. So one thing that I learned at that time is you would be surprised to some extent some things are not as hard as you think, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to producing hardware products. In software it's a bit differently. And the other things we needed, the other talents we needed at that time was someone who is good in making videos, someone who knows, who can help us a little bit with building a website. Today there's way more tools to do that, you probably won't even need that skill anymore. And that's mainly it, to be honest. Okay. But that's a direct-to-consumer plan. If you yeah. build a software, then you need a few other talents, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's a different story, but uh, yeah, you build this direct-to-consumer brand. So. The validation, you said you got the best validation by just wearing the watch and then people asking you where you got it from and they would buy it. That's yeah. like invaluable uh, feedback. But other than that, also going a little bit further, I, I want to explore a little bit if you were rather a type of person that kind of ignored all the negative feedback that he got and just stuck to his tunnel vision and executed on his uh, own vision? Mm. Or did you like caref- carefully consider every step and take in a lot of feedback? Because I think it's kind of difficult in the, in the very beginning if you don't have a track record. 
Yeah, absolutely. So in the very beginning, there was not a lot of negativity around me when it came to the first 100 watches. Of course, there was, I mean, I was studying law. Yeah. I had law students. <laughs> the number one thing, the number one reason why you study law is normally security. It's a very secure study. If you do a good job, you can get a very good, well-paid job. And if you do that job well, you will get more money. You can build a family, buy a house, all that, all of that stuff. And you mm-hmm. have a very good social prestige, right? So there's a lot of security. So of course, I think to a certain degree, you will always have friends who, when they tell you, what is this bullshit? Why are you doing this? Shouldn't you be studying? In the end, they're not offending you. They're they're defending their own world, mm-hmm. right? I think that is always yeah. a perspective you should you should have in mind. If people give you pushback, often they just want to defend their own mm-hmm. position, right? Yeah. And don't want to feel wrong themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and that is, and then when you realize that it's just human nature, you you feel like, oh, okay, that's that's I understand why you say this. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I still want to try. Yeah. So in the beginning, you were mature enough to see what's the actual root of these kind of comments from yeah, the other lo- people? Yeah, the, the most negativity just came from yeah. like super conservative law students with, okay. re- with red and green and, and yellow pants. <laughs> so I wasn't too, I wasn't yeah. too concerned about that because I was like, okay, so if I do what you say, I will do the things that you want to do, but I don't really want to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. For, for me personally, that was that was not the hard. The, the first hundred watches was not that hard. Also because a lot of people said it's cool, and hundred watches is not too hard to sell. Yeah. So just why your friends, why your own network, you can get to that point. Many people want to support yeah. you. I mean, that is also something you will see. You will actually, you will always get initial support from your network, ex- especially if you show them that you're passionate about something. And at that time, you were able to balance the you know entrepreneurial life with the security life of continuing your law studies. But exactly. at some point, the Ex- workload probably exactly. went and that, up. Exactly. And that, that brings me to the next point. So yeah. at that time, it was of course, there was um, some moments where I was studying a bit less or for two or three weeks, I was really hanging behind. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I was still able to kind of mix student performance with getting Captain and Son to the first hundred customers. But then we decided that we actually will buy the thousand watches because we got revenue from the first hundred and we were able to produce one one thousand watches. And that was then a big decision because mm-hmm. from that point it became a real company. Yeah. Right? Even things like insurances was needed, an office was needed, and you needed to think of how to sell a thousand watches. So for that you need marketing budget. Where is that coming from? What are you doing for that? And and then when we when we went into debt, we really struggled. So we went to 200, 300, we still had some momentum, but then we, it really, it, we, we struggled to, to continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, our network was, I think, exhausted to a certain degree. And also I had, I had ne- neglected my law studies for months, <laughs> right, at that point, because the stress level got high, you got tired, you couldn't manage to do both things. So it hit me. Mm-hmm. Right, and it hit me hard because I had to write my first exams, and I actually failed in two of them. So as mm-hmm. law students, you have six, and two of them I kind of wrote. Three of them I wrote in that time, and only one of them I passed. Mm-hmm. But uh, my ambition as a law student, like of all my friends, was to have in in German law it's nine points. So you go from zero to eighteen points, and you want nine because then you can go to the big law firms mm-hmm. and you can earn like six digit salaries it's like because everyone writes the same exam it's a state exam mm-hmm. and and yeah i actually failed two exams 
and I had still the other ones and I had the oral that was all written and then 30% or 35% are oral so that was also in front of me mm -hmm. so I still had two exams and oral to kind of keep up with that but and I had already two that were really well so I had fucked up two and I had two that were really well and I still had some stuff to go and but I really realized this is hitting me because I'm good at this but I just didn't study mm -hmm. and then I confront your parents they know yeah. about that you look at the, your friends who still have the good grades right and and you realize shit I I could not I could not achieve what I've worked for what I wanted at least half for the last years proper degree yeah and 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 then I was questioning a lot of things and Luckily, at that time, I found a video. I found it. It's called Fear Setting. So it's a, I don't know if it was already a video at that time or still a concept from Stoicism, mm -hmm. but it's called Fear Setting. And <clears throat> it talks about, and there is now a great video from Tim Ferriss, which, I can which you can share with your audience mm -hmm. afterwards. But it talks about that you always set, take a lot of time to set goals mm -hmm. and to say, okay, this is my ambitions, this is what I want to get. Uh, you you make it quantifiable you break it down in milestones what I have to do next and you take a lot of time for that and you are very rational about that and sometimes quite optimistic and then but what you never take time for is actually managing and setting your fears at the same time mm -hmm. and you have to do both what does that mean setting your fears your fears when you set goals are super emotional your brain is, is there to make you survive so it will always trigger by its nature it's trying to take you away from from risk so you get emotional when you think of the fears and worst case scenarios and what fear setting does is that it it gives you tools to manage your fears mm -hmm. should i tell you the basics of it uh, yes 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 sure. so it's first of all you take your your fear and you define it so in my case it was i'm afraid of continuing to do captain and son because it Maybe it won't work, it will, I will fail. At the same time, I will lose my degree, I, I will not do a good degree, mm -hmm. and my friends will do a good degree, mm -hmm. and I will lag behind, and they are my peers, and mm -hmm. that's really bad, you know? Yeah. That was my fear, kind of. I defined it, and I really broke the things down. Yeah. And that's the first part. The second part fear setting asks you to do is, you think of, you, you, you think of how you can prevent that. So you take the bullets that you've defined as your fears, and then you think of measurements you can take rationally to prevent them, mm -hmm. right? Once you've done that, you go to the next stage, which is you, think of, you think of measures that you can take to repair what you cannot have prevented, mm -hmm. right? So the one is anticipating, the other is retrospective. So if certain things that you're afraid of would happen to a certain degree, how could you repair it? Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you, you take your worst case scenario if I can't prevent it, if I can't repair it, and the worst case scenario happens, how bad is that really, mm -hmm. right? And how bad is that really talks about what have you learned on the way and, and take that and compare it with if your fears don't manifest and mm -hmm. you achieve your goal, how great would that be? And then you look at this whole framework and you're like, okay, these are my fears. I can, there's actually a lot of things that I can do to prevent them. The way I structure my studies, the way I structure my work with my co-founders at Captain and Son, Right? Then you see, oh, there's ways how I can repair it. Like, I still know I still have the oral exam now. I can still do that things. I can then take extra time there. So you really came up with a tactical plan. And then I read, okay, the worst, let me think of the worst case scenario. What is really, really unemotional the worst case scenario? And it was, if everything fucks up, I just lose one year of my life. 
Mm -hmm. I start everything again, but just one year ago. Yeah. Let's say captain is nothing. Okay, I go back to studies. Okay, until then I probably have to do the whole uh, deep work preparation for the bar exam again, which is about one to one and a half years, so I go back to that. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that will happen to me is that I will lag one year behind to my friends, yeah. right? And, and because in law you can also write the exam twice. Mm -hmm. There's not just one shot. You can actually write it twice. <laughs> yeah, that's the last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an important. So yeah. I realized, okay, that fear is, is actually, it is um, so emotional. Then I thought of my friends and the ones who are really your friends, like they would still support you and mm -hmm. they would find it. And I also found, thought, thought about a concept of friendship. Yeah, so I really feel, felt empowered when I did that. Because mm -hmm. uh, I also thought, as said, the comparison to the, what can happen if it works out, right? I can get out of law, I can build my own company because mm -hmm. it is potentially on track to really work. And I've learned so much on the way. If I will go into laws, if I will become a lawyer, I've done things, I've seen things mm -hmm. that no other law students did, right? I've learned a lot. Entrepreneurial spirit and drive helps in any job. Yeah. So. I will send you the video. Yeah, Tim yeah, Ferriss yeah. can explain it much better than me. <laughs> I don't think so because it's your own story. And I think that sounds so powerful at that stage that you actually sit down and you write everything down and you kind of zoom out and try to not care about the noise so much that is surrounding you as a young uh, adult. And you take this very mature yeah, strategy. I guess this is not for every person. For other people, one year lagging behind their peers would be total... Uh, total meltdown for them but you probably rather prioritize for excitement in your life than security i guess it's also uh, just your personality uh, but that sounds yeah powerful and then a couple and sun scales further we talked about it in the beginning uh, it's quite big now it's still going but you you're still on the board at captain mm -hmm. but you decided to start a new project and can you just quickly tell us how that happened Yeah, I mean, it was in 2018, the business was on really good track. We had two people from our team who had the potential to become managing directors who were not founders. My other two co-founders were still hungry to live in the functionalities. They were still hungry to really expand that. While I was just finishing a big project, which was kind of our international expansion. So I was also zoomed out more from day to day work. So I had a unique And we had no investors, we were bootstrapped. So they were not telling any of us we have to say. And also it was four and a half years. Normally you have a four year vesting. So at that time we would have already had that as well. Mm -hmm. So it was just a unique opportunity to actually take a step back. And I was like, okay, I still want to start new companies because Captain Sun was becoming more mature. It became more about managing. And I still felt like founding. And yeah. I really was inspired by a lot of technology entrepreneurs in, in New York, where I was for quite some time for Captain. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get into technology. So, yeah, I took a step back into a chairman and board position and didn't know yet what I would do. But then luckily on a holiday with my great friend Andreas, who's also my co-founder, who you also know, co-CEO, we had the drive to conversational commerce and then to later Charles during a holiday. We realized we want to do that. So he left McKinsey uh, a few months later and that was kind of our beginnings. Yeah, amazing. And you have such cool backgrounds, Andreas, coming from e-commerce, McKinsey, trying to, you know, make the incumbents more robust and you coming from a rather entrepreneurial stage where you try to disrupt the market and you two now came together and started Charles. And um, yeah, 
if people want to find out more about Charles and how they can get involved, I guess they have to get in touch with you and also to hear your full story because we went quite deep into, into the beginning, but I like that. So yeah, um, if they want to get in contact to work for Charles, to find out more about you. I think they can just go on my LinkedIn, for example. You will probably share that, it's Artyom Weisbeck. Mm -hmm. Or they can ask you directly, right? And then you can make the introductions. I think that's the easiest ways. Uh, perfect. And you already mentioned some very, very... Oh, and also we have, a, uh, of course, a job site on hello-charles.com. Uh, so you can also go there. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, you mentioned uh, valuable resources already that we will put in the show notes. And thank you for answering all of the questions. I think it was a super powerful conversation uh, to listen to. And yeah, uh, if people are interested or want to hear who we interview next, please follow us uh, also on LinkedIn or Twitter at the First Rank Podcast. And yeah, if you haven't already, you can listen to our previous episodes now and see you next time.